Well, it was my uh, first and uh, final season of football. It was seventh grade, and my brother, some of you know this, some of you don't. Uh, if you don't know it, you might not believe it because you look at me, but my brother is actually a pretty big guy, and he actually played football for Ohio State. His position in high school was wide receiver at Ohio State. He was a tackling dummy. Um, but I was seventh grade, and it was time to try my hand at football. After all, it was our family legacy. That's the thing I should have been good at, right? And so I went to try out for football, and I was a very, very timid, very, very little guy. And so I got there on the field, and I was so excited. And the coaches said, okay, what I need you to do is, if you're a wide receiver, go over here. If you're this, you go over here. If you're this, go over here. If you're this, go over here. I'm in seventh grade. I'm like, can you please just tell me what a football looks like, right? So, so I walked to a part of the field, and next thing I knew, I was Pleasant Middle School's newest offensive lineman. I apparently got to the wrong part of the field. I mean, look at me. I'm not exactly O-line material by any stretch of the imagination. In seventh grade, I was probably about a buck 20 or less, so this was a problem. Well, very, very quickly, I got put on line drills against a guy who was about 60 pounds bigger than me. And what that was is they put us right next to each other. The coach blew the whistle. We hit each other. And, you know, you were supposed to push the other person uh, the opposite direction. Well, very, very quickly... Uh, they blew the whistle. I hit this guy. His name was Mark, and he was a nice guy, but he was so much bigger than me. And before I knew it, I was moving backwards really quickly. And so they stopped. The coach said, all right, we'll give you another try. That was a slow start, right? Get back in there. So boom, blow the whistle again. I go back faster. Another start. I go back faster. It was like Rudy, except nobody was cheering for me. It wasn't cool. And, and my coach decided he would encourage me the way coaches do. And he grabbed my face mask, pulled me over, looked at me and said, right, are you afraid of him? And because I, you always say no coach to everything, I was like, no coach. He's like, are you afraid of him? No coach. He's like, are you afraid of him? I was like, no coach. Then he's like, why then do you keep letting him push you backwards? I didn't know it was a rhetorical question, so I just screamed out, because he's bigger than me, coach. <laughs> I, I got to be honest, that wasn't the answer he was looking for. But I got to be honest with you. I was so afraid. I was afraid not to live up to my brother's standards. I was afraid that if I didn't cut it in football, I wouldn't be popular. I was afraid that one of those dudes would kill me because I spent most of the season on the ground. But as I've gotten older in life, I've realized the temptation to be afraid is constant. There are challenges that sometimes just seem way too big for me. There are so many things that are happening that are out of my control. Even in my job where I'm supposed to be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of the youth ministry, so I'm supposed to be somewhat in control. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel like that. In life, the things I'm supposed to be in control of, or even things that I used to be in control of, sometimes all of a sudden fall apart. I think all of us know what it's like to be afraid. And sometimes, like me, I played in seventh grade and quit because I didn't want to be afraid, and so the easiest thing to do is just to walk off the field. Sometimes at some point in our lives we got so afraid, we thought we had limitations, and so we decided to kind of take a step back. And we decided that, you know what, maybe the best way to, to, be, to not get afraid, to not, be, to not worry, is to just make life easy, to not take any challenges, not take any leaps of faith. Well, when I was in high school, the uh, governor of Minnesota for a while was Jesse the Body Ventura. And uh, he came out with this quote, he said, Christianity is a crutch for the weak. And what he was trying to say is that, you know, we, we believe in the afterlife, that, that Christians are just a bunch of weak-minded people who need to fool themselves into believing something. As a teenager, when my atheist friend quoted that to me, I was a little offended that he had said that. 
But the older I get, the more I realize that the problem wasn't so much his quote as the fact that Jesse the Body Ventura obviously didn't hang out with enough real Christians. And he obviously didn't read the same scripture we have. I think as much as we're supposed to be love, known for our love, our joy, our peace, as much as Pastor Brady talked about that we're supposed to be known as a people who forgive, we also need to be a people who demonstrate a courage that is far beyond ourselves. So that when people look at the church, to say something like Jesse the Body Ventura would sound almost ridiculous. I want us tonight to look at the story of Joshua, someone who God had called to be courageous. And in Joshua's call, maybe we can find our own. Turn to me, Josh, with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to be going through tonight. And I'm going to start by just reading verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of, no, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. I think sometimes we tend to fear things because the task seems to require someone greater than us. I think a lot of times in life we feel like whatever we're feeling called to do, whatever position we've placed in, there is somebody, it must require somebody greater than us. When I was playing football, I always thought, okay, if, you, if I wasn't like my brother, then I shouldn't even try. I think a lot of times what we do is we tend, when faced with a challenge, we tend to see ourselves as inferior to other people. I mean, think for a second the pressure that Joshua could have felt under. The passage starts off with saying, you know, Moses is dead and now Joshua's aid gets a big promotion. I mean, think of all that God did through Moses. Think of the plagues, think of standing toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, think of escaping Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, all the miracles, all the things that God did through Moses. And it would have been so easy for Joshua to say, God, you don't get it. I'm no Moses. And in fact, when God came to Moses and said, you don't get it, I'm a nobody. A lot of the prophets, when God called them, the first thing they did is they said, you know what, I can't do that, I'm not good enough. God, you don't understand who I am. A lot of times when we look in Scripture, we kind of view Scripture like we might a comic book or like we might some of the movies that are out nowadays. We tend to see characters like Moses, like Abraham, like David, like Jesus, like Paul. We tend to see all these characters, right? And even the human ones, right? Even the ones not Jesus. Think of just the other characters in the Bible. Think of the ones where Jesus is fully man and and fully God. But just think of just the people who were just people, Moses, Elijah, King David, Solomon, Samson, all these people, we look at them and we tend to see them like superheroes. We tend to see them like Batman, Spider-Man, Superman. I mean, we think they're, it's not that we don't think they're real, but we kind of think they're otherworldly. We kind of look at them and think, I could never be like that. In fact, maybe we've thought about it so much that we don't even think that we could do something like some of the things Moses did, or we couldn't be like Elijah, or even we couldn't be like Peter or like Paul. I mean, things like that don't happen anymore. We're not made of the same stuff as they are. But the truth of the matter is is that our strength isn't a measurement of our personality. Our strength isn't a measurement of our personality, but the power of God displayed in our lives. The thing that was so special about Moses, the thing that's going to be so special about Joshua, the thing that was special about Peter and Paul was not 
who they were, but it was who they followed. It was who they said yes to. The ancient Jewish people always had this question that they would ask their rabbis. Why Abraham? Why did God pick Abraham and from him eventually make the Jewish people? Why did God use Abraham to fulfill his promise? And what the ancient rabbis said was, well, God was calling everybody. Abraham was the guy that said yes. I think when we look at other people, we need to be careful not to compare ourselves to them. I think one of the most common ways we covet is we look at other people and we think, I wish I had their talents. I wish I had this about them or that. I wish I had their money. I wish I had that family. I wish I had that house. I just wish I had those things, but I'm not like that. We tend to get down on ourselves. We tend to underestimate ourselves. In our culture, there's like two things you're supposed to be good at. I think sports and making money. If you're not good at those, then, then who are you, right? And so many times we try to fit ourselves into who we think we should be and we miss out on what God wants to do in us. Imagine if Joshua would have went around trying to be Moses. If he would have tried to dress like Moses, act like Moses, and done all the Moses-y things that he was supposed to do. There were times when Moses did some of the same miracles that Moses, that Joshua did the same miracles as Moses, but every time it was because God called him. I think when we look at the heroes of the faith, we need to be careful not to assume we could never be like that. I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis, and one of the quotes has stuck with me. He said, people often assume that we don't have apostles anymore, people who do great things and great miracles for God. And, and C.S. Lewis said, I think we all know that it's not that God doesn't work, it's that few of us are willing to follow God that passionately. Few of us are willing to say yes to everything. What God needs is not a superhero. He doesn't need you to be a superhero. He doesn't need you to be, he doesn't need you to be some otherworldly character. He just needs you to say yes. He just needs you to say yes. So sometimes we get afraid because the task seems greater than us. But sometimes we get afraid because the challenge itself seems bigger than we are. Sometimes we face these huge challenges. I told you my story of football. In that instance, my challenge was literally and metaphorically bigger than myself. And it caused me to kind of shrink back and back away. In verse 4, God tells Joshua all the land that they're going to conquer. And if, you're, if you look at a map... And think of this relatively small people group of Jews that were coming into the promised land. The people were big and strong. They outnumbered them. They had been there. They had the cities. They had the forts. They had been doing warfare a lot longer. Joshua had every reason to think that the challenge was too big and too great. He had every reason to think God was crazy. And yet here's the thing. A lot of times in life, we tend to look at the things that are God calling us to. He might be calling us to this, and we tend to shrink back from challenges. We tend to want life to be easy. I think the thing is, is that we, we don't like larger-than-life challenges because we crave comfort. I think most of us, when we began following God, we did so because it seemed like the most comfortable thing to do. Maybe you were like me and you started following God because you felt burdened by your sins. You were convicted and you said, the, the best way I can get comfort is to give my sins over to God. And that is good and true and right. Or maybe you became a Christian uh, because it just your, your family was one and you saw God working through them. And you also wanted to have your sins forgiven. And so you, you went to the altar. You prayed that prayer as a child. And you became a Christian largely because it seemed like the right thing to do. But not only the right thing, but the most easy thing to do. And in one sense, following Jesus is the easiest thing you can do because all you have to do is let go and God take control. But the, the thing we have to be careful of is, is that our faith is not a faith of comfort. Our journey is not supposed to be easy. 
Look in your scripture and find one person who followed God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you won't find anybody who lived an easy life. I mean, you, I challenge you. Come to me later, send me an angry email and say, hey, here's the person in the Bible that lived a comfortable, easy life. You know, like Moses. Oh, wait. They grumbled. I mean, he did all these miracles. He, God used him. God spoke. They saw he would come down from the mountain and people would see his face shining, right? Nobody comes up to me and says, Pastor Ryan, every time you walk into youth group, I just see your face shining with the glory of God. May, just tell me what to do, right? That doesn't happen. Moses had all these great miracles, and people still grumbled. They still wanted somebody else as their leader. Why should we think that following God is going to be easy? That was never part of the deal. It's right and good and true, but if you want easy, there's probably other things that you can do. They won't be true or right and good, but you might be able to find a little bit easier, at least for a while. We need to understand that we follow a Savior who died on a cross. I think we've sometimes, I I think it's great that we wear jewelry with crosses on it. I mean, it's great. But we have to remember that that was an instrument of death. That was an instrument of suffering. And we've said it so many times. We've said that Jesus died on the cross so that we don't have to. And I think the truth behind it is that Jesus took the pain. He took our sin away so that we don't have to carry our sin. But scripture is very, very clear that his death on a cross wasn't a way for us to live an easy life. In fact... Jesus says something quite different in Matthew 16, 24 through 25. I want to re- read it real quickly. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, the idea is, is that Jesus died on the cross so that we could take up ours. And you look at that cross, and in our culture we tend to do a lot of things to, to kind of clean it up to some extent. I mean, we put ivy around it, we see it so much that maybe we get used to it, but we have to realize that Jesus died on a cross and we're called to pick up our cross as well. To be a Christian, it it can't just be fire insurance. A lot of times our faith starts with dying on, we, we go to the altar, we ask God to forgive our sins, and we become a Christian, and that is right and true and good, and we can find that in Scripture all over the place. 1 John 1, 9, for example. But the truth of the matter is, that is never where God wants to leave us. The idea is, if you truly want to follow God, if you really want to have a new life, the only way to do it is to die. As Christian, God promises victory, but it's victory through death. And so we take up our cross, whatever that looks like for us. And sometimes we joke about it and we say, well, that's just my cross to bear when there's something that's minorly difficult. But the idea is that our lives, if we're going to follow Christ, have to be about self-sacrifice. Have to be about what God wants and what what God wants and not what I want. We have to be willing to take everything we have and say, God, it's yours. If you want my house, my car, my money, myself, everything I have, God, I am all in. I'm giving it to you. Being a Christian isn't supposed to be easy, but it is right and true and good. And the beauty is, is that no matter how big the challenge is, God can use us to overcome it. There's no challenge we have to be afraid of because our Savior is bigger. We don't have to be the kind of people who shrink back, who shy away from when God calls us to do something so big it sounds crazy. We're the kind of people who can charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun if our Lord and Savior is telling us to go there. So if we don't have to be afraid, how do we actually get courage? I think this passage will give us uh, just straight out comes and tells us how to get courage. Let's read verse 5 through 8. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to it from the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I think the first step to getting courage is live in the promise of God's presence. God came to Joshua, and instead of telling Joshua to focus on the problem, instead of telling Joshua, hey, I got this big job for you, and it's going to be hard, people are going to die, it's going to be so hard, it's going to be so difficult, God doesn't tell them, Joshua, about the size of the problem. God tells Joshua about the size of himself. You see, when we are faced with a problem, we don't focus on the size of the problem, but on the size of our God. In Numbers chapter 13, I love this story. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses has just sent out 12 spies into the promised land. And 10 come back. And all they do, if you read the passage, all they do is focus on the size of the problem. The people there are so big. They're so numerous. They'll kill us. They're devourers. I mean, yeah, the land's good and the promise sounds awesome. But the people are huge. All they do is focus on their problem. But Joshua and Caleb, they don't deny that the people are big. They don't deny that the challenge is big. But they just say, guys, our God is a lot bigger. Let me show you how this works. This is a basketball. That ends about what I know about basketball. And this is a ping pong ball. And in this illustration, this ping pong ball is our troubles. This basketball, much larger basketball, we're going to say this is God. Now, this is not idolatry. I know that this basketball is not God. I have not just slipped Grace Point into pantheism, okay? I promise, okay? But let's just use this as an illustration. Go with me here, okay? And see if it's biblical or not. And you can judge for yourself. But here's my problem. No matter how big my problem is, we know God is bigger and we believe that theologically. But here's why sometimes we get afraid, I think. We take our problem and we hold it front and center. We focus on all the things about it that hurt, all the things that aren't fair, all the things that stink. I start to wish that I had a different problem and not this problem. Or maybe, God, if I was that person, I wouldn't have this problem to begin with. God, why can you give me this problem? And all I do is I focus on my problem. And it doesn't matter how big this basketball is. If I hold my problem here and put God down there... All of a sudden, I can't see the basketball because my problem eclipses my view. But when I take my problem, and instead, I know it's there, and it's not that we ignore it, but we look at our problem while keeping God in focus. And so, I could have a lot of ping pong balls there, to be honest with you. You could maybe fill this whole choir loft with ping pong balls, and if I have God close enough, all the problems in the world aren't going to seem like that much of a challenge. And we know exactly what God does to our problems eventually. Don't worry, we have lots more for the youth room. The idea is is that we have to focus not on the size of the problem, but on the size of God. The other thing we have to do in order to have courage is we have to keep a good memory of how God has used others in the past. We have to keep a good memory of how God has used others in the past. I love how God tells Moses or Joshua to have courage, but then he points out, as I was with Moses, so I'm going to be with you. I think it's so, so important that we share our stories of faith. I was sitting at a campfire one time. It was uh, at this church with a bunch of teens. And, and I remember a dad just telling me all the stuff that God had done in his life. How God had changed his heart, made him a different person, how God had spoke to him. And some of them were the big, you know, this is how I accepted Christ. But some of them were the little stories of 
here's how God used us. Here's how God brought me to my wife. And he just told me story after story after story. And I remember his teen, his teenage, uh, one of his teenage kids, his daughter was walking around. And I said, hey, you've got to come over here and hear this. Your dad's got some awesome stories. And she said one of the coolest things I think I've ever heard. She says, oh, I know. I- I've heard them all before. And uh, you have no idea how powerful that is. Make sure the people around you know what God has and what God is doing in your life. And make sure you ask other people for their stories. If there's somebody in your family who you don't know how they accepted Christ, ask them. We need to constantly share our stories, not to, not to create our own glory, but to celebrate what God has done in our lives. To give God the glory for what he's doing in our lives. My wife says in Sunday school all the time, this is my, one of my favorite quotes from my wife. Um, other than I love you, I like that one, that's probably my favorite. But the, uh, the, my favorite quote from my wife is, faith is having a good memory. You see, we trust and rely upon God, but it's based on what we've seen God do, not only in Scripture, but in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. The Old Testament is filled with all these references about set up this altar here, and then when your children see it, tell them about me. Tell your children about me when you, uh, when you lay down, when you get up, when you're on the road. The idea is, is that we have to constantly keep a good memory of what God has done in our life. But what about the person who's here tonight and says, you know what, I don't really have any memories of what God's done in my life. I really haven't seen God show up. I don't know even if I believe. Well, here's step one. Step one is ask other people what God's done in their lives. You've got a whole bunch of people here. Sunday night crowd, most of the people in this room are going to have a story of what God's done in their life. Ask them. I guarantee you they won't be offended. They'll be glad to share. And if you want your own story, ask Christ to forgive your sins. Begin a relationship with him. Take up your cross and follow him. And I guarantee you, you will get one real quick. Because as God was with Moses, so he will be with Joshua, but he'll also be with you. We have to have a good memory. In addition to this idea of, of living in the promise of God's presence, we also get courage by living in obedience. I always wonder what made Joshua, what prepared Joshua for this kind of leadership role. He didn't go to college. He didn't have seminary. I was glad that I got to do both, but Joshua didn't have any of those things, and he did all right. Uh, was, it, was it that Moses gave him the ten steps to leading people out of Egypt and the promised land? I'm sure Moses passed on some advice, but I think in Exodus chapter 33 we find out. It's on the screen. Let's read it together. I think we found out where Joshua got his leadership training. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave that tent. Joshua did this. He saturated himself in the presence of God. If you want to live in obedience, saturate yourself in the presence of God. You know, for me, uh, when I first became a Christian, doing my devotions was kind of like a duty. It was kind of a ritual because people started telling me I should do it. And so I wasn't that good of a reader at the time, and so I started doing devotions. And a lot of times devotions became about a responsibility or duty. And I think for a lot of us, it's okay to start there. And it's okay when for seasons of your life you intentionally spend time with God because you just know it's the right thing to do even when you don't feel like it. Sometimes that's the most important time to sit before his throne. But I, I, we can't, I don't want us to fall into the trap, and I don't think God does either, of always feeling like time with God is something I have to check off my list. I don't put date night with my wife on a task list. I just make it happen. I don't think to myself, 
man, I've spent one hour with Jamie today. That's all I want to spend. No, I think, how much time can I carve out for my family? When I'm playing with my son, I, I, when I'm at my best, I'm not looking at my watch. I mean, yeah, there's times when I'm ready for a nap, but when you're with people you love, the time seems to fly by. And I don't want to make you feel guilty if that's not where you're at with God yet. I don't think that's it. But what I do want you to realize is uh, try not to think of your time with God as something you have to do. Think of it as something you get to do. As much as there are going to be times, like any relationship where you do what's right because it's the right thing to do and not because you feel like it, there are going to be times when living in obedience means spending time with God because the creator of the universe wants you to just sit in his presence. If anybody had an excuse to say, I've had enough time with God today, it was the guy who was standing next to Moses. And when Moses left, Joshua could just said, okay, you know, I got to see God talk to somebody face to face. I think that's good for the day. Instead, Joshua said, I'm not leaving your presence. Along with saturating ourselves in God's presence, I think we have to spend time meditating on God's laws. In Joshua 1, verse 7 through 8, he talks about meditating on laws. And I've mentioned it to the team two times this week, but I'm going to mention it to you guys, and, and you guys are going to get to hear it again, so I'm sorry for that, but it's good for us, and it's God's word. Psalm 119, 18 through 20, he talks about how he loves God's commands. He loves God's rules. I've got to be honest with you, I tend to not love rules. I don't like them. A cop doesn't pull me over and thinks, you know, uh, sir, uh, you were going, did you know you were going 15 over? I don't respond, and my seatbelt was also off, my turn sig- I didn't use my turn signal, and my tags are expired. Please give me more rules, right? When I was a teenager, I didn't tell mom and dad, mom and dad, I really need more rules. Uh, you're taking it too easy on me. I think I should be home at 9 instead of 10 tonight. I think I need, you know, you don't go into the office and say, you know what, I need some more red tape, guys. Uh, the forms you gave me to fill out were good, but I would like some forms to fill out about the forms. And then if I could have some evaluation forms to talk about, to really think through this idea of the rules and forms and procedures that we could put into place to give me more rules and forms at work because I really need more structure. Most of us don't think like that. But the psalmist cried out for God's laws and rules because he knew they led to life. And any time we talk about God's laws and rules, there's always the temptation for someone to say, and I, I'm there too, to say, well, wait, we're New Testament believers. We don't need to follow laws. We follow the Holy Spirit. Well, I would say yes and no. We are supposed to follow the Spirit, but I like to think of, uh, this illustration really helped me. I read it in a book called After You Believe by N.T. Wright. He said, the laws in God's words are kind of like the lines on a road and like guideposts and like the the railing on some roads that are more dangerous. Uh, As a good driver, I don't get as close to the guardrail or as close to the middle line as I can without going over it. I stay in the middle. I have enough driving experience that now I don't even look at the guardrails. I don't look at the yellow line a whole lot. But the minute I hit a guardrail or I cross, start to cross the yellow line, I know I'm headed for the ditch. I know I'm headed for trouble. So as believers, we're supposed to follow the Holy Spirit and listen to his guidance in every matter in our lives. But there's also the sense in Jeremiah 17:9. Jeremiah just comes out and says, he says, the heart is deceitful above all else. And all of us have seen people do awful things, unscriptural things, and use the Holy Spirit as an excuse. And I like how Moses says here, it's almost the road illustration. He says, don't go to the, or Joshua says here, don't go, or the God says here, don't go to the left or the right. Well, we tend to not wake up in the morning and go, I want to break God's commandments. We tend to drift off. We tend to start thinking about our day, about what I want, what I need, what I want to get, and before we know it, we find ourselves drifting off the road. 
like when I'm driving in a car and maybe I get focused on doing something else, talking on the phone, or if I try to grab something off the floor that fell down, or I'm trying to change the radio station, it's very easy for us to focus on ourselves instead of God. And before we know it, we've crossed the line. But as Christians, we find a pretty good, easy way to spiritualize going around God's laws. I think we have to meditate on God's laws so much that we have them memorized. Uh, lately, I've been, it's really helped me to memorize God's Word. Some of us have smartphones or iPod Touches or things like that. What's worked for me better than almost anything is they just have some great apps. Go to your search bar and say Bible memorization. A lot of them are free. But for those of you who don't have those things or don't want those things, that's cool. Write it on an index card. Keep it in your car. Keep your Bible two minutes away from you at all times. I think we have to memorize God's Word because a lot of times when we need it the most are the times when the Bible's not in our hand. And so I would say spend time meditating on God's laws. Make memorization a part of your daily walk with Him. One warning I want to give you real quick. Courage apart from obedience is stupidity. Courage apart from obedience is stupidity. Teens, you guys know this story. I was skiing and there was a bunch of teens who were like, Pastor Ryan, come do this. And I thought it would be very courageous of me to do likewise. Instead, I just ended up getting hurt, right? Well, in Numbers 13, 39 through 45, and actually into chapter 14, the people decide, we're not going to follow God. We're not going to go into the promised land. It looks too scary. The challenge is too hard. And so the people say, yeah. so, so they decide not to, and God says, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth, Moses. And Moses says, God, please don't, please forgive them. And God says, okay, I'll forgive their sin, but here's the deal. It's going to take a while for them to get to the promised land. And this is the sin that caused them, instead of taking the direct route to the promised land, 40 years in the wilderness. Well, as soon as the people found out this, they said, oh, we're so sorry. We're going to be courageous and we're going to go take that land right now, God. And God says, no, don't do it. I'm not with you now. I'm not going to give you success. Don't do it. And they say, God, but that's the courageous thing to do. So I'm going to go do it. And so they go do it and they get their butts kicked. Like me in seventh grade football, except worse. People die and it's awful and it's horrible all because they tried to do brave things apart from God. Some of the biggest problems that happen is when people try to do brave things apart from God. People decide to take that pill. They decide it's okay to go out drinking with their friends. They decide it's okay. Uh, No, it's the same thing. If I'm still committed, I can live with this person even though they're not my spouse. We take big financial risks and we never ask God what he wants us to do. I think any kind of courage apart from obedience is not courage. It's just eventually stupidity that's going to catch up with you. Here's... What, but here's the cool promise that I love here. It's in verse 8. But when we live in obedience, God promises success. I love in verse 8, God says that I will give you prosperity and success in my version. And as a Christian, I thought when I became a Christian that everything would become easy and perfect. We have to be careful not to do word replacement with God's word. He says... To Joshua, I've called you, and in that call, I'm going to make you prosperous and successful. That doesn't mean life will be easy and perfect. If you've been a Christian for more than two or three months, you know life is not going to be easy and perfect. The Israelites would still lose troops. The battle would still be hard. And and even if they stayed faithful to God, which they very rarely did, the road would still be a long journey. Uh, Like I said before, our road to victory is through death through dying to self, allowing God to raise us to new life, in this life and in the life to come. And it's just a simple truth that prosperity and success means according to God's call, 
But the cool thing is if God has called you to do something, he will give you the success and prosperity that you need. doesn't mean, I don't know that it's a promise that food will always be on the table. I don't know that it's a promise that everything will always work out how you think. I know it's not that. But it is a promise that God will be faithful. So we get courage by living in the promise of God's presence and by living in obedience. But what actually is courage? First of all, courage is a command. Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You see, the idea is this is the third time that God has told Joshua to be strong and courageous. A lot of times we think courage is a personality trait, or maybe it's a spiritual gift, or it's something some people have and some people don't, when in reality, courage is commanded by... God wants every single believer to live by courage. Courage is not a personality trait, an inborn ability, or a spiritual gift. Um, It was probably about two or three years ago, Lonnie and Connie Norris, some of you know them, they were a family that went to our church but then left for Russia to be missionaries. They had this cool pond and they had the teens all over there for a party and they had this awesome rope swing that put you in the middle of the pond. It had two levels. It had like, you know, high level and super high level. And people always ask me, Pastor Ryan, are you afraid of heights? I've seen you on scaffolding. And I say, no, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of falling and then stopping suddenly. But I was a little bit afraid. My wife was there with me. All the teens were there. So I thought, okay, this is good. I went to the Norse's even like a week before that to plan the party, i.e. like practice this thing so I wouldn't look like a wuss. So I go up on their tree swing. I decide to do the highest one after doing the small one. And my hands are shaking. People can see it. I put my hands on the rope and you had to jump. The rope, it's just a rope and then like a little seat that you sit on. And you have to jump off, get yourself on the seat go out to the middle of the pond, and then if you want, it'll go really high your first swing. You let go, but if you want, it'll swing back, and it'll swing a couple times and get a little bit lower for the faint of heart, and you can drop in a little bit easier. Well, I decided to do this, and I'm shaking, and of course the teens are like, go, Pastor Ryan, they're encouraging me, and Lonnie Norris is saying, did I nail the top end today? Um, you know, he's, he's encouraging me with things like, we've only lost a couple, Pastor Ryan, it's okay, go ahead. Nobody will remember if you climb down, you know. Um, so I decide to do it, right? It takes me a couple minutes, and I let it swing just once or twice, but then I, I suck it up, and I let go, and I fall into the water. I get out, and all the teens are encouraging. Then my wife, who's sitting there reading a book by uh, Lonnie Norris, goes, you know, I'll give it a try. Sets the book down, puts on a life jacket, climbs up to the top of the ladder, grabs it, goes, all right, boom, jumps on first thing, goes out into the middle of the pond, at the apex of where this, this rope swing will take you. She lets go, first time, no problem, and starfishes it. Like this. I like balled up because I was scared. My wife just goes, big smile on her face, smiles, splashes in the pool, gets up. All the teens are like, what? And she's like, I'm going to go finish my book. Sits down and reads it. My wife has always been more courageous than me. In the sense of, she's a risk taker. She's brave. But that's not what true courage is about. Courage means I don't allow my fear and anxiety to, to fester in my heart or control my decisions. Or control my decisions. It doesn't, I don't allow anxiety to grow in my heart or control my decisions and actions. There are going to be times when you feel afraid, when God's calling you to something big. In fact, if you are listening to God's voice and he tells you to do something and it sounds easy, you're probably not hearing him right. Or you're probably not listening. God doesn't call us to small challenges because we don't serve a small God. He calls us to big and great things. The next blank there in your outline is courage is an obedient action founded on trust in God's power. 
I love, what I love about Joshua is that as soon as God tells him this in verse 10 and 11, you can read it at home. He says, let's get ready for war. As much as we as a church are known for so many things, I think we need to be known for courage. And what it looks like to follow God is, yes, I should be loving. Yes, I should be joyful. But people should look at you and say, wow, that person's loving. Wow, that person's joyful. Where do they get that? But they should come to us and say, where do you get your courage? The people in our society who have to make the hardest decisions, who have the hardest jobs, in some shape or form, they should look to us and say, please tell us where you get your courage from. Because we see in you a power that is greater than yourselves. So where do I need courage in my life? Well, we need courage to tell others about God. A lot of people will tell me and other pastors all the time, you're so brave. You get up on Sunday night or Sunday morning and you talk to people about God. I could never do that. I'll be honest. It's not that hard to get up here and talk about God. I mean, yeah, there's a little bit of fear of public speaking at times for all of us, but... I mean, the truth is, you kind of expect me to talk about Jesus. And if I don't, it gets awkward really quickly. Right? I mean, my, my boss told me to stand up here. It doesn't take that much courage, right? But sharing Christ with your neighbors or with that family member across the Thanksgiving table when it might make it awkward, that's what we need courage for. I love in Acts how when the believers get persecuted for sharing their faith. And right now, our country is in a place where I know a lot of us are worried, are, are we going to get persecuted for our faith? Is our nation going in a way that we don't want to see? Or are we going to start seeing some of the things that they saw in the first century? And uh, my temptation is to pray, oh God, don't let that happen. Don't allow us to be persecuted. Don't allow us to suffer, uh, defeat. Uh, you know, God, help us to live easy, comfortable lives. Help us for, uh, to enjoy peace and security. Everywhere in our nation, in our country, help us to enjoy financial success. But when the disciples in Acts, and you can look it up, in Acts when the disciples are challenged, when they're put in jail, when horrible things happen to them for their faith, you know what they pray for? Boldness to keep doing it. They said, bring it on. Whatever we face, God is bigger. I am so glad that we don't vote for God. He's not up for election. It's not how it works. And we need to live in that confidence, that security. No matter what happens... Let's live with courage. We need courage to face the next challenge. We also need courage to do the right thing even when it's the hard thing. Our world needs people who stand up and say, you know what, that's not the right thing to do. Whether it's in the political sphere, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's, it's, whether it's in your neighborhood when people start talking, when people, whether you're a teen and people start talking at a school, even a Christian school about people in a way that you know is gossip, when you know it's wrong, you need to have the courage to say, you know what, I'm not going to be a part of that. We need courage to truly and completely follow God. I love in Luke chapter 9 when these people come, or I just don't love it, it really always convicts me when I read in Luke chapter 9. When people come to Jesus and Jesus says, follow me, and they say, okay, I'll do it. And the first person he says, well, you know what? Uh, Animals have shelter, but the people who follow, I don't even have a place to lay my head. He's essentially saying, I want you to follow me, but it's not going to be easy. Not even have a place to sleep a lot of times. And the next guy comes up and says, and the next two guys, one says, Jesus, um, you know, let me go bury my father first. A fairly, what I would call a reasonable request. If I asked you to teach a Sunday school and you said, oh, I got a funeral this week. Can I teach next? I say, yeah, no problem, right? But Jesus says, essentially comes to the end of the story and says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. This is an all-in faith. 
We can't give God half and expect us to get something from Him when we return. The Christian faith is about going all in. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of what is courage is courage. We need courage to pass on to the next generation. I want to read this from, it's from Chronicles. I love this. I stumbled upon this and I was like, this, is, this came from Joshua. This is, uh, I don't know if it will be on the screen, but I'll read it for you. It's First Chronicles 28, 20. David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. Our sons and our daughters, and when I say our sons and our daughters, please hear me more broadly than just our children. This is true of our children, but true of anyone you have influence over, whether you're a teenager, whether you're a grandparent, a father, a mother, or whether a sibling. No matter what role you have, you have people who are looking up to you. And I've got to be honest, my son needs a lot from me, right? You know this. He, he needs money. He needs education, even if at this point it's one, two, three, ABC. He needs diapers changed, far too many of them. He needs potty training, preferably grandma's going to take care of that. He needs so much from me. And your kids, the people around you need so much from you. But more than they need your inheritance, more than they need even your wisdom, more than they need your traditions, although we all need all of those things, they need your intimacy with God. The best thing you have to offer the next generation is your intimacy with God. The next generation needs to have believers who say, be strong and courageous. I know the road's not easy. I know it's not hard. I'm not going to lie to you about that. But I want you to know that God is faithful and it's worth it. So stand strong and be courageous. Well, I don't know what the next challenge in your life is. But here's my challenge to you. I want to I pray for you in a minute. But before I do, on the back of your notes, if you have notes, great. If you don't, you can still do this without the notes. There's a place that says, areas in my life where I need courage. For some of you, you might only think of one. For some of you, you might think of six and have to fill up the margins. But maybe take a minute to write where areas of your life right now where you need courage. Go ahead and take a minute to write it. And I'm going to say go, and I'm going to have a little challenge. I know this isn't what we normally do on Sunday night, um, but I think it'll be okay. And I think it's something God wants us to do. Uh, I want you to share with somebody where you need courage. Just take about 30 seconds. You don't have to give them the whole situation, the whole story. Just a brief 30 seconds. Share, pair, share with somebody. You share with them, they share with you. And when I say let's pray, I want you to pray for that person. And I know for some of you praying out loud, I, my, I mean, is the most courageous thing I could ask you to do tonight. And I know it's hard. But I want you to know if you've prayed all your life or you've never prayed before, you don't have to impress me. You definitely don't have to impress God. Just talk to him. Be sincere. Be honest. It's all God's looking for. He's not looking for you to impress him. And so go ahead, find a partner, and share an area where in, life, in your life where you need courage. Then I'm going to ask you to pray. And then I'll close this in prayer when I feel that the prayers are wrapping up. But let's pray to God courageously tonight because he is a God who can see us through anything and we are commanded to have courage. So go ahead and share with the partner.